Episode 1 Mrs McGinty's Dead Hello and welcome to A Bit of a Christie the podcast series for fans of Agatha Christie true crime or murder mysteries Here we explore the works of Agatha Christie and connect them to historical crime cases which follow a similar plot In each episode, we will delve into a different aspect of Christie's work and true crime, such as changes in crime scene investigation, pharmaceutical advancements, or the evolving craft of the poison pen letter. I'm Hazel Jones, and this is A Bit of a Christie. In today's episode, we'll be delving into the 1952 novel Mrs McGinty's Dead and exploring the fascinating similarities with the real-life murder of Alice Wiltshaw from the same year. We're joined today by the writer Margaret Moxon, author of The Barlaston Murderer, Leslie Green, an intriguing and detailed exploration of the Wiltshaw case. Let's begin by introducing the cases of Mrs McGinty and Alice Wiltshaw, and the time period in which they happened. We first turn our attention to the fictional murder of Mrs McGinty. The victim is described as a 64-year-old widow. Since her husband died from pneumonia seven years ago, Mrs McGinty had been employed performing domestic chores for residents of Broad Hinney. Broad Hinney is a small village which contains a handful of cottages, a post office and a village shop. Mrs McGinty rented out a room to a lodger, a Mr James Bentley. He paid her every month for his board, which included breakfast and supper. The cost for this was £3 a week. This would roughly translate to £100 a week in today's money. Bentley, however, was two months behind in his rent and had recently lost his job. On the date of the 22nd of November... The baker called at Mrs McGinty's property with a bread delivery. He was expecting to be paid and knocked on the front door. The lodger James Bentley opened the door and went to Mrs McGinty's bedroom so that she could pay for the bread. But he received no answer when he called for her. The baker suggested she might have been taken ill, and so the men went next door to see if a female resident could enter the room and check on her. On opening the door, it was clear that Mrs McGinty wasn't in the bedroom and she hadn't slept in the bed. The room had been ravaged and the floorboards had been prized up. The attention of the three witnesses then turned back to the search for the elderly charwoman. Going downstairs, they went into the parlour. The scene they found was one of devastation, as Mrs McGinty lay on the floor with clearly fatal injuries. Police concluded that Mrs McGinty was hit on the back of her head with some sharp, heavy implement. £30, about £1,000 in modern terms, had been taken from her ransacked room. 
However, her cottage wasn't broken into and there were no signs of any tampering with the windows or locks. The missing money was later found hidden under a loose stone at the back of the cottage. Further investigations by the police revealed James Bentley's coat sleeve had blood and hair on it, and these were the same blood group and type of hair which Mrs McGinty had. James Bentley claimed he was never near the body, certainly not close enough for cross-contamination of his clothing and the crime scene. Despite his protestations of innocence, Bentley was convicted. Poirot investigates against the clock to ascertain the truth before Bentley is hanged for Mrs McGinty's murder. So, what kind of world would Poirot be investigating this case in? Nineteen fifty two saw major change in the UK, with George VI passing away on the sixth of February from coronary thrombosis at the age of fifty six. His young daughter Elizabeth was about to start a royal tour of Australia via Kenya. The news of her father's death was broken to her by her husband Philip, as they had just arrived in their Kenyan home, Sagana Lodge. The new Queen inherited a well-known name as Prime Minister, with Winston Churchill well into his second spell in charge of the British government. Identity cards, a hangover from the Second World War, were scrapped and tea rationing ended. The Great Smog enveloped London, causing an estimated 4,000 deaths. The now highly recognised scientist Alan Turing was convicted of gross indecency for homosexuality and Charlie Chaplin was told he would be refused entry on returning to the United States after the UK premiere of his film Limelight. This seemed to be under suspicion that he held sympathetic views on communism, was involved in a paternity suit and chose to date and marry younger women. Sooty and The Flowerpot Men made their televisual debuts and another important debut was made, but this time on the stage. Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap opened on the 25th of November and has been running ever since. In the same year that Mrs McGinty's Dead was published, an eerily similar mystery arose in Stoke-on-Trent. Our special guest today, Margaret Moxham, has joined us to share her thoughts on the mysterious murder of Alice Wiltshaw. Much like Poirot, she asks whether the accused was wrongfully convicted. Before that, we reach back into the archives to read how Mrs Wiltshaw's death was reported at the time. The date is the 18th of July 1952, and the Staffordshire Weekly Sentinel reports about a brutal murder on their doorsteps. Police Statement Superintendent T Lockley, head of Staffordshire CID, took charge of the inquiries and made the following statement to the Weekly Sentinel. When Mr Wiltshaw returned home at about 6.20pm, he found his wife lying in the entrance hall in a pool of blood with severe head injuries. To all appearances, there had been a severe struggle. It looked as if Mrs Wiltshaw was possibly struck about the head with a hammer or a piece of wood. 
a poker was lying nearby, and whether Mrs Wiltshaw used this in an effort to defend herself, we do not know. Dr H.J. Brown, who lives two doors away, was immediately called in, but he could only confirm the fact that the death had taken place. How the house was entered, we do not know. The intruder could either have got in by the front door or the back door, as neither was locked. Apparently, no one heard any unusual noise and no screams. We are anxious to trace a youth seen in the vicinity around 4.30pm. He is described as 17 or 18 years of age, dressed in a greyish suit of average height and with no hat. He was hanging about in the neighbourhood during the afternoon. We are also anxious to trace a young woman who we believe called at the house during the early afternoon. She might be a friend. Joining us on the show today is author Margaret Moxham from Warrington in Staffordshire. She has written five books, including an autobiographical novel called Escape from Reality, about her time living in the country of Hercule Poirot's birth, Belgium. She also has a collection of short stories called Kerry and Danny, based on a private eye in Ostend, dealing with real mysterious deaths that occurred at the time. As well as crime, she has written about topics ranging from the 1842 pottery riots in Stoke-on-Trent to religious pioneers leaving England for the New World in the mid-19th century. Margaret is also a very talented artist and blogger. Margaret, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Could you tell us a little bit about how you began your writing career? Uh, The first book I did was Escape from Reality uh, after coming back from Belgium. Um, I'd I'd spent four years in Belgium and I needed to write about that, what actually what happened there, because it was a mental, psychological journey. Your latest published novel is called The Barlaston Murderer, Leslie Green, and it's about the murder of Mrs Alice Wiltshaw in 1952. What inspired you to investigate this particular case? Uh, the idea was actually given to me by a friend, uh, Stephen Howe. I've never actually met him, but it's a Facebook friend. And uh, he wanted to do the book himself, uh, but he wanted my assistance, my help with formatting the book or getting ideas. I actually did a, a first chapter and I sent it to him. But then something happened at home, his wife got sick, he couldn't finish the book. He, he, he couldn't really get into the book, and so he said, you, you do it yourself, Maggie. I was, I was so interested in it because it wasn't just a straightforward murder in, in, in my eyes. Um, for a start, he'd, he'd presented himself to Longton Police Station, and why would a murderer actually go into Longford Police Station and said, are you looking for me? Any brutal murderer would have been well out of the way, even abroad, got, taken the jewels with him and just gone, disappeared. And so my antennae went up at that. I thought, there's something more to this. OK, Maggie, could you walk us through the scene that was discovered on the 16th of July... 1952 at Station Road in Barlaston. Mr Wiltshaw would have come home from work about 20 past six, came through the back door into the kitchen and he would have seen pots and pans strewn all over the floor, potatoes rolling around and he he thought there'd been some sort of accident or other and he called out for his wife, no answer, And and he went through to the passageway leading to the staircase. And uh, there he found his wife, 
obviously dead on the floor in a pool of blood. He was going to kneel down to her but realised he would have been kneeling in blood so, so his immediate thing he, he did was to call the police and call Dr Brown who was a, the local doctor and uh, they, they came round and obviously did their checks but one of the policemen actually got a, a dustbin lid, a metal dustbin lid and put over an area in the kitchen on the tiles where he'd seen a bloody footprint. Uh, they had a sniffer dog as well and the, sn the sniffer dog actually found a leather gardening glove in the garden and so they took that as evidence. The doctor came in and but he, he did a preliminary check over her. Uh, in, in the hallway there they'd, they'd found a hammer, they'd found pieces of wood uh, thrown around, they'd, they'd found this old poker with a claw bit on the end of the poker but the poker was actually bent and it hadn't been bent before. The doctor found was uh, several stab wounds to Mrs Wiltshaw's abdomen and right shoulder. The lower jaw was completely shattered and a large gaping wound extended from the left of the bridge of her nose to the right ear. The top of her skull had been beaten in. They'd, they'd also found a hammer and they, they reckon whoever did it used the, the hammer to beat in a skull. So after finding this horrific crime scene, the police have come in and they must have, at that point, started to try and create a picture of what happened. And they came to the conclusion that someone had committed a robbery and there had been an attack on Mrs Wiltshaw. But she had recovered, hadn't she, in between the first attack and then this ultimately fatal attack at the end. Yeah, um, because there was obviously blood in the kitchen. She'd been attacked in the kitchen, uh, but on the door frame of the door leading from the kitchen into the hallway, they found a bloodied handprint, so they no, knew she'd got up of her own accord and, and crawled through to the end of the staircase. In uh, in the in the hallway, and there that she was assailed by all sorts of things thrown at her, uh, the hammer bashing bashing her in the the um, poker going through her, um, creating these huge horrible wounds, and uh, also there were. Um, Money had been taken out of a bag. The jewellery had been stolen. It was, the jewellery they reckon was worth about three thousand pounds in those days, which was a terrific amount nowadays. Did they draw the conclusion it must have been someone who had a knowledge of the house? Therefore, that they knew that these items uh, were there, or was it just that someone had walked along that road, seen that it was a very a privileged and well-to-do place and they guessed that there might be items of value inside? I think they came to the conclusion that it must have been so, someone who, who knew the family, knew that they had jewellery um, and also there was a, a, a little dog there. The, the dog would have barked if he'd known that this intruder, if he'd known, he didn't know the intruder. If he'd known the intruder, he, he, he wouldn't have barked, and the dog didn't bark, so they thought, yes, this person is known. 
police then quickly turned their attention, didn't they, to a man who you know a lot about called Leslie Green. What do we know about him and what was his connection to the Wiltshaws? Leslie had been their chauffeur come handyman uh, until May 52 when he was sacked for using the car when he shouldn't have been using it. Um, he'd been with them for two years since 1950 and he, he was well liked. If you use a car without being given permission then you're bound to be sacked. Did he have a resentment against the Wiltshaws for the sacking? Was there anything known about his contact with them afterwards or was it that he was dismissed and that, and that was that? Yes, he, he was out of a job. He needed money and, and he couldn't get a job because he didn't have a reference. So Leslie Green had been unsuccessful in this job. What do we know about his previous jobs or his life growing up? What we do know about his life growing up was that he, he had two spells in Borstal. I couldn't find anything much about his uh, how he grew up apart from growing up in Leeds because I couldn't find anything on the heritage websites. Um, he was born uh, 4th of December 1922, and so that's after the latest heritage sites are available. Um, I even went on to a, a Leeds website asking questions if anyone knew him, but I didn't get anything back, unfortunately, so uh, there was not much I could uh, glean from anything about his youth. But um, he was in the army, he went into the army when he was 16 in 1939, and uh, he didn't come out of the army until 1948. He did get married in '46 to Constance Gunn and they, they did have a child, Gillian. So we know that Alice lived in a very luxurious property and that she had um, a lot of time on her hands. She was a lady of leisure and she was able to enjoy the finer things in life. What would life have been like for Leslie? Coming out of the army, uh, he... he found himself a bit lost. He, he hadn't been trained for anything apart from driving. Um, he, he got a few jobs. He got a job with a baker's delivering. He got a job with an uh, insurance um, company. Uh, but none of these jobs lasted long. He, he couldn't keep to anything. He, he also had a, a nightclub job as a, a, a bouncer at the Cameo in Longton. That's where he met up, as he said, with friends Charlie and Lorenzo. He finally got this job with the Wiltshaws and he found that more interesting than the other jobs because he was going here, there and everywhere. And he, he liked driving the car. The, the, the car was a status symbol to him. People looked at him, oh, look, a beautiful car going by. And he had a nice uniform to wear as well. So he, he, he loved it, but he stayed there two years, but then things started to change. And uh, he started to want more. And he went to Leeds and there uh, he met uh, Nora Lammy a nurse, and he started going out with her. didn't matter to him, somehow or other, that uh, he'd all, he was always, already married with a daughter. <laughs> and uh, that's where I think the, the psychopath part of him comes out, and which I wanted to bring out in the book, because psychopaths don't have any feeling for anyone, really. 
you know, he didn't care if his wife still had a mortgage to pay on their place in, in Blurton. He didn't care if he wasn't paying payment for his daughter. What I've said in the book is when, when he met this Nora Lammy, he started calling himself Terry. She, she knew him as Terry. Now, and, and in my book, I've taken Terry to be the psychopath part of his personality. Terry was the one who wanted everything. He, 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 he wanted fame and fortune, but, you know, Leslie was holding him back, losing jobs, no money, whatever. So he still had to do petty thieving. He, he grew up in a bad neck of the woods in Leeds and he had to thieve to put bread on the table and that, that was what he knew. That's why he ended up in Borsal a couple of times. Um, so he carried on with that. He'd lost his job now with the Wiltshire so he had to get some money in from somewhere. As you mentioned in your book The Ballaston Murderer, Leslie was cooperative with the police, wasn't he? When he actually walked into Longton Police Station, he, he, he actually, would you believe, told them that he had a place in Beeston Street in Longton where he had a lot of stolen stuff. There, there was a wallet and a driving licence that he'd nicked from someone called Harold Ratcliffe in Western Coiny, a shirt, a few other things. And so the police went immediately to that place and, and they found them. And they, they, that's when they held him in the cells because they'd found all this stolen stuff. Obviously wanted to keep him there to try and investigate further whether he was part of the Wiltshire murder. And that gave him the chance. The, the local newspaper, when they reported it at the time, gave a very clear window for when this murder could have happened. They said that Mrs Wiltshire had taken a telephone call at quarter past five, and that at 20 past six, she was then found. So that gives us an hour and five minutes uh, unaccounted for. Where does Leslie say that he was at that time? Well, as for the time, um, yes, she took a call at quarter past five, and and the two maids left at 25 past five, and... Mr Wiltshire wasn't due home till 20 past six. So it's, it's in between that time, but the police had to work out whether he could get from Barlaston Station to the house, to Estrell House, do the murder and the robbery and get back to Barlaston Station in that small amount of time. As for uh, Leslie Green, he said he was asleep on a park bench in Stafford because he'd had too much to drink and a large lunch and uh, he left the station hotel at about 3.30, fallen asleep at the park bench at Stafford and didn't wake up till later on and we went, went back to the uh, station hotel for a, for a meal and then got the train to Leeds. That's what he said. We now take a journey ourselves as we travel back to the fictional world of Broad Hinney and the murder of Mrs McGinty. By now, Hercule Poirot is fully investigating the case of Mrs McGinty and that of James Bentley's innocence or guilt. It is discovered that three days before her death, Mrs McGinty had been busy clipping out a newspaper article. The story had been taken from the paper The Sunday Comet, which was known for its scandalous stories. 
but not perhaps for its editorial accuracy. The clipping contained a story about two old criminal cases, both involving women. One, a governess called Eva Kane, and the other, a 12-year-old girl called Lily Gamble. Here at A Bit of a Christie, we don't want to give the name of the actual murderer. All that we will say is that it's a thrilling ending. Hercule Poirot's little grey cells do solve the crime. But was it James Bentley or a resident of Broadhinney? Why not read Mrs McGinty's Dead and find out for yourself? We now return to our interview with Margaret Moxham. When we left, Leslie Green claimed he was asleep on a park bench at the time and couldn't have possibly killed Alice Wiltshaw. Here in part two, we find out what was revealed during the trial. A key moment in the trial was the train timetable and the ticket collector, wasn't it? Superintendent Lockley actually did the walk from Barliston to um, Astral House. He wanted to see if it possibly could be done in, in the short time that they had for Leslie Green to do the walk, get to the house, do the robbery, do the, do the murder, get back again. And, and uh, the 5.10 train to Barderston got in at 5.40. So that gate allowed him basically seven minutes each way to get to Estoril and get back again to get the 6.05 train to Stafford, allowing him 11 minutes in the house. And so Superintendent Lockley basically said if, if, he, if he ran, he could possibly do it with 15 minutes in the house. The train timetable also helped to disprove Leslie's movements later on in the day when he claimed he had left Stafford train station. He said, Green actually said the... Uh, trial that he caught the train at five past seven but he didn't catch that train because the ticket uh, collector actually gave witness that he was speaking to Green up to 7.20 and uh, and that Green must have got on the 7.50 train to go back to Leeds. In Margaret's book she takes an interesting perspective on this case and the frenzied attacks motivation she feels that Leslie Green could have suffered from a mental health disorder which caused him to house several personalities with inside his mind. These three personalities of Leslie, Terry and Terence all have a different role to play in the murder. I've written Terence uh, as another personality that's come out. Uh, Terence would be a protector and... Terence came out in his youth, uh, protecting him in gang warfare and also when, when he was in the army and went to France and was rescued in the small boats. Terence came out there sort of protecting him against the gunfire, protecting him about other people who wanted to get onto this piece of a ship that he found that he could get on to use as a raft and other people were trying to get onto that as well and Terence would just kick them off. He didn't care about anyone else. He was protecting him and the three of them, Terence, Terry and Leslie. So this, this person, this personage would come out when he was being attacked. And I feel that 
this person of Terence came out when Leslie had gone into Astral House to do the robbery, was confronted by Mrs. Wiltshaw. Mrs. Wiltshaw um, threw a pan of potatoes at him and that's when Terence came to light and then started this brutal murder of her. Perhaps these were genuine blackouts and when Leslie says that he didn't remember certain things, that actually might have been the case that because of these blackouts he couldn't remember. Oh, oh def- definitely, because, you know, I mean, if Terry was, as they say, in the light, le- uh, looking after the body, leading the body, then... then uh, Leslie wouldn't know what was happening. He would have these blackouts. He wouldn't know what was happening. As far as Leslie knew, he was asleep on a park bench in Stafford. During the trial, it was revealed that Leslie Green had been seen having dinner with two other gentlemen. These possibly could have been his friends that he'd worked with at the nightclub, although there was no formal identification given. Uh, but the two guys from the hotel came to do the robbery, which they had actually discussed. Despite Leslie naming these two men as his friends Charlie and Lorenzo, no identity could be confirmed and therefore their stories could not be corroborated. From the state of the house and the the injuries inflicted on Alice Wiltshire, it's not impossible to believe that it was more than one person, there being so many different ways in which she was attacked. Just my theory, as an author's theory, I can't say any more. The thing is that the jewellery, part some of the jewellery is found, they got two rings off Mrs Wiltshire's fingers and Leslie gave these two rings, or Terry gave these two rings to his uh, girlfriend, Nora Lammy, and they're a necklace, a chain and a cigarette case. But what happened to the other jewellery? Did the other two men go off the... They never found him. They never found... They looked in all sorts of places that he could have been. And uh, they never found the rest of the jewellery. So did the two men go off with the rest? Without an alibi, the defence had to rely on Leslie Green's recollections of what happened on that day. Oh, the court case was... uh dreadful for uh, Leslie because he he wasn't backed up by Terry anymore and he didn't have those memories that Terry had. Um, he, he couldn't remember, for for example, um, he, he was asked about Lorenzo and Charlie and he, he was asked about their car uh, or their last names or what was the registration of their car and he, co- he couldn't answer. And every, that's why the jury actually thought well, he's made up these people and he's just trying to get off with it, saying that these Lorenzo and Charlie had done the robbery, had done the murder. and that's, so, so that's why the jury only took 29 minutes to come forth with a reply of guilty. As the case unfolded, there was yet more strong evidence against Leslie. And what became of the blooded footprint that was found by the police and a dustbin lid was put over the top? Were they able to match that up to anything? Well, first of all, I'll say that uh, when Green presented himself at Longton Police Station, they went through his belongings and they found these trainers, sneakers, with a strange pattern on the sole, not, not a usual pattern. They took those to measure up this print in the blood uh, at, in the kitchen at Estrell House and they seemed to meet 
they seem to co correspond. The, the sole on the on the shoe was seemed to be the same as the, as the print in the blood. Um, so that was an, another thing against him. I mean, what what Green said was basically. I mean, I got them from a friend in Manchester. He, he brought them over from abroad. He could have given them to anyone. Any numerous number of people could have had them. That was his defence. But again, he couldn't remember anything about those shoes being in that house because Leslie, the Leslie part of him, had blacked out. Mm. Were there any other pieces of evidence that the police had other than the glove and the footprint and the fact that the uh, timetabling of the trains didn't entirely match up? Well, they they uh, actually got a ticket that he um, a train ticket. His train ticket that he purchased at Barlaston, they'd got that, so they knew what train he was on. And also they found the RAF-style coat on a train at the end of the line, and that coat had been on the train, uh, that uh, the 750 train from Stafford. And so they knew exactly what train he was on. He, 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 everything else was lies. I mean, by, by the time in this court case, I mean, Jeff, um, Leslie was so perplexed, wound up, couldn't remember anything that he, he was basically saying, you've made it all up. In December 1952, Mr Justice Stable found Leslie Green guilty of Alice Wiltshaw's murder. But what was his reaction? Did he suddenly confess or did he still proclaim his innocence? He just took it like a soldier, basically. He, he, he knew the case was lost. He, 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 he'd mucked up his defence completely. He didn't remember, he couldn't remember things that had happened he, and he had no comeback. So he knew the case was lost, and he, and when the uh, jury came back after just 29 minutes, that that was it up, and he, he's, a, he's actually scrawled in the um, dock area, Leslie Green's last stand. Mr. Wiltshire couldn't live in the house any longer, and he sold her. It had been a college for a few years, um, but the college had changed it, altered it, pulled down shelves, pulled up tiles, wrecked it basically, and then uh, the college left and uh, they, it was left to go to rack and ruin with rain coming in the roof through broken tiles and I don't know what's going to happen to it now, I don't know if it's going to be pulled down, made into flats, whatever. A bit of a Christie would like to thank Margaret Moxham for coming on to the show today and sharing the tragic story of the death of Alice Wiltshaw. For me, this case highlights the words, ordinary evil. Alice was a housewife in her home, making tea for her husband, and the worst possible thing happened to her in her place of safety. The actions of that half an hour period went on to affect the lives of the Wiltshaws and also Leslie's family, his wife 
and his daughter. The fact that this case took place just six months after Agatha Christie had released Mrs McGinty's dad goes to show how accurate Agatha Christie was in seeing the secret side of English village life, the evil that lies in ordinary lives. It is our aim at A Bit of a Christie to talk about the accomplished works of Agatha Christie, but also to promote other people who have a link to her works. Margaret is in the process of writing two more books, and here she tells us what we can look forward to. Well, the first one is about the RAF Ford explosion of uh, 1944. So that's the 27th of November 1944 it happened. I've been given actually loads of information by the grandson of the lady who set up the temporary morgue. Plus I've interviewed people and I've got stories online from people, people who actually experienced it, what happened to them. And I'm, I'm incorporating that all into this book. And the second book? It's to do with the Daniel brothers in Rough Close in Staffordshire. And uh, this is set in uh, 1886, where one of the brothers killed the other brother with a shotgun. After, we think, a row. I've got all the newspaper, the archive newspapers about it again. So, And I've got all the trial so that's all going in, but what I'm going to also build in is um, a century later or more, when another family is there, just moved into the house, and they start experiencing ghost or phenomena. If people wanted to find out more about your work or buy one of your novels, what is the best way for them to do that? Most of them are available on Amazon.co.uk. Um, you can go onto my website, which is... Maggie Moxham, that's all one word, dot artweb dot com. And uh, that will show a few of my paintings that I've done as well. And all of these links can be found in the podcast description below where you are listening now. Well, thank you for joining us in this first episode of A Bit of a Christie. We hope you've enjoyed yourself, and if you have, there are numerous ways you can keep up to date with what's happening in the A Bit of a Christie world. Simply type, all one word, A Bit of a Christie into the search bar on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Failing that, the links are all in the description below. Episode 2 will see us focus on the book 3 Act Tragedy, and we will be talking to West End actor Julian Holt. We'll be asking Julian important questions, such as what is life like as a modern-day actor? Do we still need stage names? And how exactly do you take on the personality of a beaver? See you next time on A Bit of a Christie.